0: A while ago, our church went through a a study, Sunday mornings, a seminar, that was entitled Two Ways to Live. Some simple but effective illustrations were employed to communicate the gospel, to illustrate how simple and clear the good news can and should be shared. We started with the reality that all men are spiritually dead in their sins because of the fall in the Garden of Eden. We then celebrated God's plan for salvation, his son Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who to save us came into this world and bore the sins of man upon himself. And make those who believe in him alive in him, Jesus says it this way, stating in the very opening words of his ministry, Mark 1.15. Repent and believe in the gospel. In just five words, the God of the universe tells us how to receive the gift of life. Repent and believe in the gospel. It really is simple. That's why we can use simple illustrations. Repent means to acknowledge and turn from your sin. And direct your attention upon the God who saves. And to believe, accept, and receive his gospel as truth to live by. In Luke 24, 45-47, Jesus tells us exactly what the gospel is as he spoke with his disciples, stating, thus it is written, the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And we know because of John 3.16 and elsewhere, the result of believing in the gospel is eternal life. And this is only made possible because Jesus not only frees believers from the penalty of sin, but he makes us right in the eyes of the Father. Jesus accomplished this by imparting his righteousness on all who claim him Lord in part, means to place upon. Now think about the truth of what Christ does for those who truly believe. He simply places his righteousness on the believer. And all the believer has done is to truly believe in their heart and mind that Jesus is who he says he is. Just as Jesus says in John fourteen six that he is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. And Hebrews 4.12 emphasizes this, that Jesus is the only name given to men by which we must believe. And that is all we must do, is believe. Nothing more, nothing less. This is why it's called God's grace. But what exactly is grace? Grace is an undeserved gift, something we've done nothing to earn. Everyone who claims Christ should understand why the word grace is so important. The word grace is used 11 times in the Old Testament and 114 times in the New Testament. Put simply, again, it's an undeserved gift. Nothing we've done anything to earn. And truth be told, every single blessing in life is an undeserved gift. But there's a very important reason we declare when we sing amazing grace when praising Jesus. He imparted his righteousness onto us, he placed his righteousness on us, he gave us his righteousness. 1 John 2.20 calls this an anointing by the Holy One. And 1 John 2.27 says the anointing abides in you. A simple definition for anointing is make sacred or chosen by God. But how does this happen inside a person? How does this happening abide in us? The Holy Spirit On Wednesday nights in Scripture for Living, we recently spent several weeks studying John chapters 14 and 16. I would encourage anyone who desires a deeper understanding of the Holy Spirit, who's also called the counselor, the helper, the advocate, the spirit of truth, to visit John chapters 14 through 16, where the miraculous individual and personal work of the Holy Spirit with the Father and Son is made so clear. Just as Acts 238 calls him the Holy Spirit is truly a gift received upon true belief a gift to be fully embraced through all of this grace we are made righteous but what does righteousness look like in a believer what does it look like to have the righteousness of Christ placed on us and in us. Well, Scripture tells us something to always remember. The only way to truly answer Bible questions is with the Bible. Scripture will always speak for itself. This morning's Bible passage, in this morning's Bible passage, Jesus continuing his Sermon on the Mount tells us more about what his disciples that is, all true believers, look like. And specifically for this morning, what the practice of righteousness must look like. Open your Bibles to Matthew 6. And if you don't have a Bible or did not bring one, for yourself, consider becoming more intimately connected with the Bible and bring it to church always. And if you want one for today or to keep, raise your hand. We'll give you one. The Bible is the greatest, most important gift you will ever own. And it's not just a textbook for church, but living and active words to physically cling to, to carry us through each and every day. Because the Bible contains the living words of the God who made you. And he says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. One of the ways that we do this is by being consistently connected to our Bibles. Before we open up God's word today, I want to share with you something about the Bible. Here's a world map highlighting 52 countries where owning a Bible is not taken for granted. The orange represents countries where it is difficult or dangerous to own a Bible. The red represents countries where it is illegal or highly restricted to own a Bible. And the black represents countries where it is strictly illegal to own a Bible. I found this map at persecution.com, the voices of the martyrs, where women and children cling to their most prized possessions, their Bibles, and families who study their Bibles in secret, and men who risk their lives to smuggle Bibles. Looking at this picture, please consider a couple of questions. What about your life testifies to truly cherishing and clinging to your Bible, just as these believers do? What is more important to you? Your Bible or your smartphone? We live in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile towards Christ and his word, including here in the United States. When I grew up, there were Bible bookstores all over the place. Not anymore. If you own a Bible, you are blessed with the most precious gift anyone could ever own. And again, again, If you don't have one, let us know, and we will give you one. Not only do you never want to take for granted the freedom to own a Bible, but if, if indeed, you believe the Bible to be the one true source of the living words of God, your relationship with and appreciation for your Bible should reflect this truth. Now, before we open up this morning's wisdom, let's ask God, to bless our time together, please bow your heads. Lord Jesus, you are the righteous one. The righteous one who directs the paths of those who listen to you as their Lord. That is, the righteous one we follow. The righteous one who we obey. The righteous one we cling to at all times. Whether life is going well Or life is turbulent and challenging as your word makes it clear it will be. By your work on the cross, you saved us and made us righteous in the eyes of your Father. You make your righteousness known to us by placing your words in our hands as a righteous roadmap for life and your spirit in our hearts for righteous accountability and the help needed for understanding and practicing your righteous words for righteous living. Righteous living not to be performed for men, but as a responding testimony of you abiding in us for your glory. We were made alive by you, for you. For this, Lord Jesus, we lift up your words for all believers, the body, the one true church, here and around the world, and pray that we all, whether under the threat of persecution and even jail, or as those who are blessed to freely carry and own a Bible, that all believers would cherish your righteous direction, reflecting the true hope of eternal life, that you bless us to own, read, hear. And I pray, keep with great pride all the days you have numbered for each of us to live. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Thank you, Jesus, for your amazing grace on your cross and your continued intercession by sending your spirit to help us and guide us. Now, please, spirit, impart the truth of your words into our hearts that we praise and thank you with and for. In Jesus' name, amen. Please read along with me, Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound the trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that you may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your, your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now back to our question. What does righteousness in a believer look like? It's not just The words from Matthew this morning that help us to answer this question. But our entire study of Matthew thus far helps us arrive at an aim for this morning. The grace of God is on display when righteousness is practiced for his glory. To develop our aim this morning, we'll divide our scripture into two points. Practicing righteousness and unconditional giving. Practicing righteousness. Again, listening to Matthew 6, 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. First, it's important to define righteousness. What exactly does righteousness mean? Well, according to dictionary.com, it means acting in accord with divine or moral law free from guilt or sin. This is accurate, but it's also a bit vague. So using scripture, we'll go a bit deeper. And define righteousness as being in two connected phases that define true and observable righteousness. First, a legal phase. Listen to what Romans 5.18 says. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification, life for all men. So just as sin and spiritual death entered into the world through one man to all men, through Adam, justification salvation from sin and spiritual life entered the world to all men through one man, Christ. As we learned a few weeks ago, the better Adam. Justification is a legal action. It's a legal term. In the eyes of God, we've been justified by Jesus because of the penalty he paid on the cross. And all we have to do is believe and accept this gift. And when we do, we change. We're transformed. That's why it's called being born again. Remember last week from Romans chapter 6, being made alive to God results in newness of life which causes the second phase of righteousness, the character phase. Listen to what 1 John 1, 7 through 7-9 says. If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we do not have sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Through sanctification, believers are progressively made righteous in character and conduct by walking in the light. For some reason, the last line is cut off that second part. I'll read it again. Through sanctification, believers are progressively made righteous in character and conduct by walking in the light, which is Jesus. Sanctification is simply the process of spiritually maturing. It's growing in Christ. And if you are walking with Christ, you cannot help but be influenced, transformed by him. Look at the connection between the two phases, being made right with God Results in walking with God. According to 1 John 3 9, if Christ truly abides in a person, it is impossible not to change because you have been born again. Again, as was stressed last week in Romans 6, Christ delivers newness of life. In last week's sermon, we also visited Isaiah 53 the miraculous prophecy of the life and death of our Lord revealed nearly 800 years before his birth. I was reminded of something else that stands out about the entire book of Isaiah. The entire book plays out like a grand persuasive speech. For years, I've coached and taught persuasive speaking at local colleges. Persuasive speaking is also called oratory. It's the foundation of communication studies. The format most often used for persuasive speaking is called problem-cause-solution. A persuasive speaker employing this format must first identify the problem, second, explain what is causing the problem, and third, offer solutions to solving the problem. And doesn't it make sense that the foundation for communication studies employs linear structure to most effectively identify and address problems. Considering that, God used speech to speak into existence our world with structure. The book of Isaiah masterfully reminds us that God is a God of structural wisdom because he's the author of it. In Isaiah 1-2, God himself defines the problem... Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons, I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. The problem, man rebels against God. In Isaiah 1.4, God himself defines the causes of the problem. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with inequity. The cause of the problem is the weight of sin. In Isaiah chapter 53, we are given a solution to address not just the sin that was compromising God's people, but all peoples of the world. The only solution for solving the problem to man's rebellion against God because of sin is the righteousness of God himself given to us. Listen what God's word says in Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6 and 11 and 12. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, that is the sins of us all, to fall on him. By his knowledge, The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. He himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressions. Whether it was 800 years before Christ, during the time that Christ walked on the earth, or modern day, today, the format is still the same. Problem, cause, solution. The problem is always rebellion against God. The cause is always sin. The solution is only the righteousness of God himself given to man and not just to free us from the fire of eternal hell, but to help us live peacefully until he returns and to bring him glory with our deeds as we await his return. Listen to what Philippians 4.9 says. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen from me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Notice it does not say put into practice what you have learned, received and heard so that you can get into heaven. That would be works and that would make what Christ did on the cross insufficient. Our works do not get us to heaven. Because Christ paid the price, and he placed his righteousness on us while dead in our sins. The work is done. If you believe truly, you, you've been saved. But why is the Bible full of instruction for living? Because the world's messed up. And our great shepherd does not want us wandering around aimless and miserable, lost in the ongoing practice of sin until he returns or we die. He wants us to be living testimonies of his grace so that we can participate in his plan for salvation in his name to all the nations and live joyfully rather than in a constant state of dark despair. And to help us do this, he's placed his words in our hands and his spirit in our hearts. But we do have to participate. Galatians five sixteen through 17 makes this clear. Listen to what the Spirit says here. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Here God's word makes it clear the struggles of life will continue even when you've been saved. You still want your sin, but you also want to do what's right. And the spirit makes it clear that walking with him is a choice. We can choose to walk by the spirit or we can walk by our flesh And while we have a choice, he does not leave us alone to figure things out. He's given us his word as a roadmap and convicts our hearts to receive and practice these words. Most of our study in Matthew has been about what Jesus says believers look like. Again, let me repeat that what Jesus says believers look like. Jesus says what we are to look like, not what we are to look like, but what we do look like. And that is newness of life, imparted by the righteous one. Leading up to where we are today, in Matthew 5, 3 through 12, Jesus blessed us with the Beatitudes, which are to be seen in the lives of believers as the hope we have because we have eternal perspective. Our focus is on the kingdom of heaven, and people should see this in believers as a testimony for God's glory. In Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus declares that believers are salt and light. Again, it doesn't say shall be salt and light. You should try to be salt and light. It says believers are salt and light. And that is because salt preserves, light saves. Jesus says this is what believers are, salt and light, and not because we are following any rules to get to heaven. Again, that would be legalism, but rather because of the transformation that results upon accepting his invitation into his heavenly kingdom and the newness of life he blesses us with. And in Matthew 5, 21 through 48, the conclusion of Matthew 5, Jesus gives clear direction for living in a dark world. And doesn't it make sense that if we are made to be light, on the behalf of Christ that we walk in his light rather than darkness and now today we are blessed to begin Matthew 6 which begins with a convicting warning not to live out our righteousness for our own glory or self-righteousness but for God's glory and God's word also tells us exactly what this looks like and how to do it on a practical level Habakkuk 2:4 and Hebrews 10:38 both tell us the righteous will live by his faith, and the faith we have in our hearts, and the righteous direction for living we have in our hands, we only have because it's been given to us by God, the grace of His righteousness. Not only can we not claim credit for it, but we must celebrate the author of righteousness and not ourselves in all things we do. Titus 3, 8 and 14 reminds us that our good deeds are to testify of him and be fruitful. When people see God in the righteous living of believers, that is the light of God working and being glorified. But when people seek and accept praise for their deeds without giving credit to God, that is people being glorified for people and not God. And here we have a principle. The righteousness of Christ that Christ has imparted on believers is to be witnessed only for the glory of God. I have a few questions for you. Have you received the righteousness of God. And if you have, what exactly about your life testifies to others that it is the spirit of truth and his living words that are directing you and not yourself? Do others see good deeds in you for yourself, selfish motives, or for the Lord you claim? Where in your life is there room for improvement? How will you pray about it? Where in your life are you denying yourself the righteousness of God by making poor choices rather than following the instructions he's given you in this perfect living word? Remember the problem-cause-solution format. Think about how that can apply to any sin in life, marriage and family, professional life, social life, finances, all areas of life that are made difficult because of choices people make, choices to rebel against God's plan, because of unchecked sin in your lives. But solutions, there's the good news. There's one way to fix it, by receiving and practicing the righteous direction he's given to us with his words and leaning on what he's blessed us with in our hearts with ceaseless prayer. This applies to all the sin challenges of life. And if you have yet to receive... The righteousness of Christ, the free gift that He wants you to have, you can pray about it right now. Right now, you can accept Christ, the righteousness He wants to give you. You can do it at any time. And if you're still on the fence, pray about it. Take it to Him. Now that we've used God's Word to study what practicing righteousness must look like, let's see what the Bible says about unconditional giving. Reading Matthew 6, 2 through 4. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, so that you may, may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their full reward. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret. Will reward you. I repent of this. For most of my life, I have judged the poor. I did not look at them as Jesus did. And it's easier to see those asking me for my money with less convicting terms or phrases to dismiss those that the sovereign God of the universe has placed in my path. I'd often ignore them with the help of cliches, like but not limited to, lazy, bums, drug addicts. He'd get a job if he wanted to. If I did give her some of my money, she'd probably use it for more crystal meth. On the rare occasion I did give some of my money to someone who was asking for it, I would do so only after I had judged the person thoroughly, looked him or her up and down, and decided that they may indeed use my money according to my standard if I give them a little of my money. First of all, any money a person has, it's because God has permitted it. We are all just stewards of whatever He has decided to bless us with at any given moment, and this is not to be taken lightly. About seven years ago, I heard one of the most convicting messages I've ever heard preached about giving to the poor. All the pastor did, using scripture as the standard, was purpose to communicate to us the simple truth that God does not give us conditions for giving. He just tells us to give. And he warns us not to judge those asking. And he makes himself... He himself leads us by example. Matthew 5.42 says, Give to him who asks you. And the ESV actually says, Give to the one who begs from you. Luke 6.38, Give and it will be given to you. 2 Corinthians 9.7, God loves a cheerful giver. Hebrews 13.16, And do not neglect good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. God did not give any conditions for giving. He just tells us to give. God also makes it clear that he does not want us judging the poor, telling us in Proverbs 22.2, The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. Proverbs 14.31 says, he who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. Proverbs 17.5, he who mocks the poor taunts his maker. That's, notice that's twice. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be caught ever taunting my maker. Proverbs 21.13, he who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also himself cry and not be answered. Proverbs 29, 7, the righteous, the word we're studying today, what we want to aspire to with the Lord's help, the righteous is concerned for the rights of the poor. The wicked does not understand such concern. And not that we should be motivated by self-interest, but God makes it clear he will bless those who freely give. Proverbs 19, 17, one who is gracious to the poor man lends to the Lord and he will repay his good deed. The Lord says he'll repay those who give. Proverbs 22:9. He who is generous will be blessed. Proverbs 28:27. He who gives to the poor, listen to this, he who gives to the poor will never want. We cannot outgive God. And just like he promises in Malachi 3.10 to open up the windows of heaven and bless those who properly support their church, he also promises to bless those who care for the poor. Our God's a God of giving. And if we are supposed to be imitating him, we should be doing what? Giving. But personal gain should not be the motivation for giving but rather responding to his unconditional giving to us. Listen to what Psalm 112, 9 says. He has given freely to the poor. And as we know from our study of Matthew, that is the poor in spirit. His righteousness that would endure forever. His horn to be exalted in honor. His righteousness bestowed upon us by giving himself upon his cross freely and unconditionally. And just as he freely gives to us, we are to freely give to others. And not in a way that showboats what we are giving, but in a way that shows thanksgiving to the author of all the blessings in our lives. When you give, it should be unconditional. And it should have no other audience other than the Lord and the recipient of your giving. Again, what is the definition of grace? An undeserved... Undeserved gift is what I gave, but what you said is also correct. Jeff probably sounds even better. An undeserved gift. But if Christ is our example... It's also an unconditional gift, which gives us our second principle. Jesus commands his disciples, and again, we define disciples as all believers, to give unconditionally to the poor, just as he unconditionally gives to us. A few questions for you. How sacrificial is your giving how unconditional is your giving how often do you give knowing how important it is to God that we give freely will you pray about giving more as a way to let him know how much you appreciate all that he's done for you I took a, a hike uh, a couple days ago and I saw some beautiful wildflowers outgrowing about in different secluded spots of the desert landscape the beauty of God testifies so brilliantly to his creative power also known as true science my better half my wife Fleur was fast to point out when I shared with her these photos that these wildflowers are a perfect symbol of something that finds its sole purpose for bringing glory to God. Wildflowers, more often than not, spring up in places no one will ever tread or gaze upon their beauty, and yet their existence speaks to the majesty of the creator, God himself, bringing him glory. Would you please pray with me? Lord, we praise you as the creator of all things. By your power, you made the earth. By your wisdom, you established the world. Unfortunately, your wisdom is not man's wisdom and we are prone to reject you and to do as we please, which often results in wallowing in darkness. Thankfully, you, Lord Jesus, brought light into the world and by your grace offered your righteousness in place of our sin so that we can have hope in this life to direct us And ready us for eternity with you. And all we have to say is yes, Lord. I acknowledge my sinful state. I turn to you, not only for forgiveness of my sins, but for help moving forward with the newness of life that you promise. In preparation for eternity with you, because by you, the righteous one, we are made right. For this we praise you, thank you, and petition you for help to live lives that glorify you just as the flowers of the field and help us to unconditionally love others and give to others just as you love and give to us. It's in your name, Jesus.